Psalm 25 of David. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love. For they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me. For the sake of your goodness, O Lord, good and upright is the Lord. Therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. For those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever towards the Lord, for he will pluck me, he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distress. Consider my affliction and my trouble, and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes, and with what violent hatred they hate me. O oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O oh God, out of all his troubles. This is the word of the Lord. I want to look at this psalm in four dis- distinct parts. First, I want to look at the plea that David makes to God, the context for that plea as we might understand from the rest of Scripture, and then his motives for that plea. So the, the background of David's life that he had in which he probably wrote this psalm, and then also the reasons why he is able to trust God. I want to look then at God's covenant faithfulness. And this word covenant faithfulness is the literal translation of what the ESV translates steadfast love. Steadfast love means immovable, but the words in the Hebrew actually mean his faithfulness that is over generations or within the context of his covenant. That God is going to show David mercy because of God's promises to Abraham and to Moses. And so this word steadfast love is needing to be expanded in our minds to understand this is the God who has set his love upon his people and does not take it away. Then I want to look at God's holiness and God's glory and his patience with his people as he demonstrates his goodness in leading them in the way. So this message is entitled that God leads sinners in the way. This is the great and grand promise to us. 
And yet at the same time, it shows us how Christ trusted in the Father so that we likewise will trust in the Father. The promise in this passage, the great promise, is that God's covenant faithfulness, his steadfast love, does not be, it's not removed off of his people, but rather he leads them in the way. And then finally, at the end of this psalm, in the, from 16 on, I want to look at how these words actually are a, a foreshadowing, a prophetic picture of what's happening in the heart and the mind of the Messiah as he goes to the cross and as he goes to suffer in our place. So with that in mind, I, I want to make a conjecture. Most commentators uh, explain this psalm, although there is no specific inscription describing this time uh, to which David is referring, I, I believe that this is a particular time in David's life for, for a number of reasons, both in this chapter, but also its place within the rest of the book of Psalms. And David's life was not a life in which you could say, oh, this must be about that circumstance because there's so many to which this psalm could apply, right? Saul, at one point, was seeking David's life. It says that he wanted to pin him to the wall with a spear. That the king of Israel took a spear and off of his throne tried to pin his servant David to a wall. I don't know about you, that would be a terrible context to live in. I have never encountered any sort of violence of that degree. But later on in David's life, he then, after becoming king, committed sin, not only conceiving a child with Bathsheba out of, merit, out of wedlock, but she herself had already been married to Uriah. If you don't remember the story, it is one of the most amazing examples of how a righteous person who trusts in the promises of God can still do great and horrible evil. David sees Bathsheba on the roof of her house bathing, and from his palace, he calls to her. He sends a emissary, he sends a servant to knock on her door and tell her to come to the temple, to the, to the, to the palace, excuse me, which in those days was part of the temple complex. It was near every part of the worship of God. So she comes to his palace, he seduces her, and then she is pregnant. Because he knows that she has a wife, David then calls Uriah from war, from the battle, to come home and to stay at his house, seeking to hope to conceal that this child is David's, but rather it would be a, a, a very likely possibility that this child would be Uriah's. Uriah, being a noble man, understanding the law of God, does not go into his tent while the armies are still out in battle. And so David's plan is thwarted. And at this, he does not repent nor confess his sins, but he layers a grander conspiracy on that which he's already begun in committing adultery. He sends this man back to the army with a letter of his own murder in his hand. Uriah gives that letter to the commander of the army. The commander of the army puts Uriah at the forefront of the battle and silently calls retreat on the rest of Uriah's fellow army men. This is murder and adultery, high-handed breaking of 
the commandments and concealing them. And we know, if you know the story, we we learn that after this moment, because of David's sin, death falls upon this child who is conceived. And then they have another child. And God then deals with David in a certain way to show him his manifold sins. And nevertheless, David is considered in the scriptures to be a righteous person. Of all the people in the scriptures, people like Moses, Elijah, Abraham are considered men of faith. David, you may know, has a unique label that he is considered to be a man after God's own heart. This is the sort of forgiveness that is capable uh, or is possible for the saints of God. We see in David's life not only the grand scope of sin which a saint may commit, but the grand greater scope of the forgiveness of God. And that is exactly which, that which David is really banking on in this passage. I don't believe that this psalm was actually related to the event with Bathsheba and Uriah, but rather a few years after that took place, Absalom, his son, rose up and instigated a coup, uh, a, a takeover, a revolution of the country in which he interposed and set himself outside the gates so that any person who was going to come to King David for justice, Absalom would interrupt him and say, no, deal with me, I'll give you a favor, favorable result. And the scriptures say, and thus he stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Absalom, at once he has kind of gathered enough power, runs the mental and military calculus and says, now I can take the throne. He gathers his armies, he gathers indeed the entire nation of Israel, and they take the city of Jerusalem. And at the hearing that Absalom is coming, David says to his entire household, we must flee lest we perish when Absalom overtakes us. So David had encountered a life of scorn and shame among his brothers. He was rejected by the current king, Saul, even though he was a great favored man in military and in leadership. He was anointed for king for a time, but not recognized publicly as that king. He committed great and horrible sins, which brought necessary consequences. And now, at this time in his life, his own son institutes a rebellion where he comes after his father and tries to kill him. That, I believe, is the context of Psalm 25. We must not hear this psalm and say, oh, David is having a troubling season or a troubling time. David is running for his life. He is escaping from his city, the city of David, and is running to the mountains to find a cave or a hill to hide in so that he and his family is not killed. This sorrow in this circumstance is likely the reason for this psalm. Everything that I just enumerated in David's explore, the exploration of David's sorrow is the background for this. And we, we must have that in mind because we, we cannot really, unless that's in our mind, we cannot really see the depth of despair and conversely can't see the depth of trust in God. In the midst of running for his life, David is giving praise to Yahweh saying, you are the one who shows steadfast love 
and you are going to lead me in your way, even though I'm running away. Here, David boldly cries out for direction and deliverance in the midst of fleeing. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. I love these words. There are a number of psalms and songs which begin with these words. And what I love about them is from the beginning of David's prayer, he expresses trust. He expresses faith. He teaches us here, by example, how we ought to approach God. When we pray and when we are found in places where we cannot save ourselves or cannot get out of a circumstance, we don't begin prayer in despair. We begin prayer, I'm trusting you, God. Don't let me be put to shame. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. The reason why we, we have strong reason to believe that this was the time of Absalom's rebellion is because the phrase wantonly treacherous is those who are committing treason or treachery without need, wantonly, with, with disregard for what's going to happen to themselves or to, or to David those who are wantonly treacherous, those who institute coups and silent rebellions. This is what David is fighting and running from. Even at this time when he is literally looking for a way to go, a place to go, David does not just ask for circumstantial wisdom, but for wisdom for all of life. He asks for the ways of God, not the way out of Jerusalem into the mountains. It's important to see that because David is showing, he's teaching us something here. He's saying that more important than just deliverance from this particular problem, Lord, I need something much more than that. I need you to show me how I am supposed to walk. And I'm convinced that David has actually had a moment of reflection here. He says in verse 4, Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Here David is not just asking for a specific momentary instruction, but rather that he would know the counsel of God's mind and the things that move God's heart. He wants to know God in God's ways. He doesn't just want to escape. So often we when we look at our circumstances and our troubles, we think that the most important thing in that moment is deliverance from the problem. But really the most important thing in that moment is that we get a greater picture of who God is and we have a greater knowledge, a real communion with God by the Holy Spirit that we know him and that he knows us, that he's able to see us by the power of his Holy Spirit, that he can look in our lives and put his finger on things which ought not to be there. I think that this is actually one of God's purposes, that perhaps at this point, the reason David is asking for such general wisdom and general knowledge of God's ways and not specific details of how to escape is because there's something about this tragedy, this deep sorrow that has caused David to have a moment of self-reflection and introspection, that he's looked at his own heart and thought, perhaps this is because of my own sin. Perhaps there is something for which I am being rebuked. And it's often the case, I think, that God uses 
though he does not bring the trouble upon us to chastise us, to punish us, he does do it to discipline us. The reason I use those words is because punishing has to do with inflicting pain, whereas discipline has to do with putting structure within us, instruction. There's a great difference as the father relates to his children between punishment and discipline. Punishment is not possible for those who are truly in Christ, but discipline is surely needed at all times. Hebrews tells us that all discipline seems unpleasant at the time, but afterwards it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness by those, for those who are trained by it. That's what I believe is going on here. David, in the moment of despair, sees so many things in such clarity that he actually has reason to repent. Even though Absalom's rebellion might not be directly related to a specific sin of David, David takes the occasion and he uses it profitably. He uses it to approach God and to, to yield up his heart and say, Lord, look at my heart. I, I'm going to lift up my soul to you, to be examined by you, to be approved of by you. And if there's anything in which I'm not following your way, make me know it. Let me know it. That's what David here is praying for. David then asks that God would remember his covenant faithfulness, his steadfast love, and not the sins of his youth. In verse 6, he says, Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your covenant faithfulness, or your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. That phrase is so wonderful. I love the gift of the English language. How we can use prepositional phrases at the end of sentences to provide a poetry. They have been from of old. And you can kind of imagine if David was uttering or reading this psalm, there would be a wonderful reverb and an echo there and a pause. He is celebrating God's covenant faithfulness, which has existed for thousands of years, even at the time of David's writing. That between David and Adam, who heard the first promise of the gospel in Genesis 3.15, there had been thousands of years. The covenant faithfulness of God, even to David, was ancient and immovable. I love to reflect upon the fact that we cannot change history. And irrespective of what I do tomorrow, the objective fact of Christ's death 2,000 years ago provides amazing confidence and hope that I cannot remove the cross of Christ, that I cannot undo the event by which I have been redeemed. That is what David here is saying is, I've heard the stories of how you gave to Adam and Eve a promise and how you told Noah that Noah would bring a measure of rest and how you gave to Abraham a promise to leave the country he knew to go to a place that his children would inherit, that through that offspring there would be a blessing which comes upon all the nations. These are the things that David is referring to. That to Moses, God had given a promise that he would lead out his people and through signs and wonders and would shame Pharaoh and, and rebuke the idolatries of Egypt and exalt the name of Yahweh in the surrounding region. And that after entering the land, God's people began to drive out those who were committing wickedness in the land of Canaan. And God was bringing about a purification. And David now, as the king of Israel, has a great strike against the 
pinnacle of the fulfillment of God's covenant faithfulness. And at that moment, he says, what's going on with Absalom hasn't changed the covenant faithfulness of God. And therefore, he says to God, remember me according to your covenant, not according to my sins. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. In a minute, we're going to see another comment that David makes. But I think it's very interesting that David says that he is asking for forgiveness for the sake of God, not for the sake of himself. That God forgives his people so that he would be seen as good and glorious. God's steadfast love, his covenant faithfulness, is his choosing of his people, we know from Ephesians 1, before all time, and that choosing is settled forever. Ephesians tells us that God predestined us to, adoptions as, to adoption as sons before the foundation of the earth. Before our first father, Adam, stole from that tree in high-handed rebellion, God knew his people. Not only did he know his people's sins, he knew that he would call them to himself, and that calling would be effectual, and it would be grand, and it would be glorious. That is how David is able to say, your steadfast love, which is of old. It is quite literally older than anything, because it is in God himself. That God's great desire for mercy for his people is a part of his heart and a part of his ways. Here, David directly contrasts the covenant faithfulness and steadfast love and the sins of his youth and his transgressions. In verse 6, he says, remember your mercy. And in verse 7, he says, remember not. See, see what he's doing here? He's making a great contrast. Remember your mercy and your steadfast love but remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. The parallelism is there because David is saying something in his prayer that as he's praying to God, he's teaching us who read his psalm. He's saying that God's steadfast love and God's covenant faithfulness are so old and so eternal and so sure and so filled with mercy that we ought to rest in them and we ought not to be captivated by the momentary sins. In fact, David is actually teaching something here in the midst of his prayer, that in the light of God's eternal covenant faithfulness, which has never changed, which is from ages to ages, that the sins which, with which we are taken up, the, the things which entice us are actually, I don't have a better word for it, they're insane. I want you to think about the revelation of God that David had. That this was the God who, even though Adam had stolen from the tree, gave a promise that Eve's offspring would crush the serpent. That building throughout the history, David had learned from the scriptures and from the oral tradition, God's perpetual forgiveness of his people over and over again, and that his goodness had been displayed. And he says, Okay, God, therefore remember me according to that and not according to my failures and my follies. That David, seeing a glimpse of Bathsheba on the roof of his house, in a moment is trading the covenant promises of God for a fleeting passing pleasure. 
James tells us, if you were here during our time in the book of James, James tells us clearly that the sins that we commit are not sins that we are just deceived into, but we are deceived by our desires for them. Because our souls and our spirits run the wrong emotional, mental, spiritual calculus. We run the equation and say to ourselves, that seems worth it. And that's exactly what David is saying. He's saying, in the, in the light of your covenant faithfulness, blot out these temporary sins, these little small things that I've done, although they're high-handed rebellion against God, they're little blips on the radar. Don't allow me to trade my temporary passing pleasure for the eternal riches of knowing God. I believe that is what David is asking for. He says, remember not the sins for the sake of your goodness. David then calls to mind God's faithfulness, teaching us the reason for all of his confidence in the preceding prayer and the continuing prayer after this verse. This promise in verse 8 is perhaps the most important thing that I would want to communicate to you today, is that you have things in your life that you do not like. Personality traits, character flaws, sins which easily entangle you, and some of those things you have allowed to discourage you to the point of, I'm never going to get over this. I'm never going to gain victory over that. God can't love me while I'm repenting in this. And I think that that would be a strategy of the enemy because of what verse 8 says. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. Not once they've arrived. Not once they've fully not become sinners any longer, but are thoroughly sanctified saints, he instructs sinners in the way. He's not going to wait to give you instruction until you're mature. He's going to give you instruction in the way. Verse 9, he leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. Throughout the scriptures, we have seen glimpses of the dichotomy, the real problem of God's holiness in the midst of the sinfulness of his people. If you read the book of Judges, that book alone would give you dozens of indications that God's people trapped in their sin cannot remain in the liberty of the promised land, that they will be affected and infected by armies and by those who would seek to to pervert the worship of Yahweh. And we, we know that when God's glory was in the midst of the camp of Israel, there were often times where his wrath would break out against those who were sinning and coming too near the holy place in a state of sin. And yet in this verse, we hear such an amazing promise that God's goodness and God's holiness is not the reason that he keeps his people aloof, but that his goodness and his righteousness is the reason that he calls his people to himself. 
God's goodness is the reason why he leads his people so that they would become wise in his ways. God loves his people and through his pardon of them, he is seen as glorious because he is the God who delights in mercy and not judgment. That's why uh, David uses the word therefore. I want to read this again. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. The reason that God wants to bring his people into healthiness, maturity, his true worship of God, the removal of idols, is because he's good, because he's holy. We see pictures from time to time of his holiness being incompatible with our sin, but here we have a promise that because of his holiness, he's leading his people out of their sin. Verse 11, for your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. The reason that David is so confident in the sure mercy of God is that because of God's grace, through God extending pardon to David, great things would be said about God, that he is a great forgiver, that he is a wonderful pardoner, that he is able to make atonement for the most heinous of sins. Even recounting the story of Bathsheba and Uriah this morning, it's unthinkable the depth of deception and murder and evil that David went to. And yet, good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. That's what David is banking on. Not his ability to repent, not his ability to look at his heart and find that which does not belong as he walks before Yahweh, but because Yahweh is committed to making his name great. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it's great. That when God pardons great guilt, God is seen as a great God. That's what I think David is trying to say. And in fact, the rest of the scriptures make that quite clear. David is here continually looking to God for grace, for forgiveness, for pardon, because he knows that this is the way of God's steadfast love. His steadfast love is not just the granting of promises, but the forgiving of those who err while waiting to inherit the promises. And whether you know it or not, that's you and me. We err while waiting to inherit the promises. Sure, we have become new creations in Christ and we have the Holy Spirit residing in us, but you and I sin in thousands of ways every day. We err in many ways and have many faults. We don't love the way we ought to love. We do things we ought not to do. And God, therefore, because of his great goodness, instructs you and me in the way. So now turning to how does this psalm show us Jesus Christ? How does this psalm preach Christ? It's this, that speaking by the Holy Spirit, David's psalm not only shows the heart of his own heart as he is running from his troubles, but speaking by the Holy Spirit, David being a prophet is prophesying about the heart of the Messiah as the Messiah goes to pay the penalty for sinners. Though David had great troubles, most of his troubles that we've talked about this morning have brought on consequences that were the just result of his consequences. What was the sin or what was the uh, capital 
penalty for murder and adultery in the Old Covenant. It was death. David deserved to have the, the sword unleashed upon his own house. And yet God spared him from that. Just as God spared Adam and Eve from an immediate execution of the sentence, they were allowed pardon for a time. Even though David had great sins in his life, which brought on necessary and just consequences, nevertheless, Christ, who goes to the cross, committed no sins. He never committed any sin. And yet he took upon himself the sins of his people in such a way as these next verses show an amazing point of doctrine. Christ suffered not for his sins, but for your sins and for my sins. Christ never uttered a lie. Christ never deceived anyone. Christ was never jealous of his friends or his neighbors. He was never unkind. He was never short with his family members. He was never unforgiving. And yet it is exactly those sorts of sins that Christ died for and more. David fell under the just consequence of his own treacheries Christ fell under the unjust consequence of others' transgressions. Verse 16, turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. In learning to read the Bible this way, that at certain points when an author such as David or Moses or Paul or one of the epistles or one of the prophets is speaking about themselves or about the people of Israel, there are things which cause us trouble in reading that way and in learning to read that way. But here I want to highlight something that's very interesting to me, that first, as he says in verse 18, the word forgive is actually the word to lift up or to bear off of someone. He says, forgive all of my sins, bear them or, or pardon them or forgive them to lift up. Imagine it like this. A, a man is carrying a very heavy load of stones on his back such that even a small stone would cause great difficulty. And David here is praying that God would take away his sins, that he would lift them up off of David. If you remember Pilgrim's Progress, it's the great, it's the great focal point in that story when when the pilgrim lets down his bag at the cross. That's exactly what is going on here. And the question we have to ask ourselves is this, how does David say my sins and how can we still read this as relating to Christ? Surely Christ had troubles and the moments going to the cross, but he didn't have sins of his own as we've already seen. I believe the solution is this, That Jesus, the Messiah, speaking through David by the Holy Spirit, is able to call them my sins because he so thoroughly identified with his people in not only the incarnation but the union by the Spirit that he's able to say they are mine because he took them off of the sinner and he placed them upon himself. That as the Father was pouring out the wrath of God upon Christ, that that was the lifting off of the grand burden over the people of God and the sentencing upon Jesus Christ. 
that that is why the Messiah, speaking by the Spirit through David, is able to call them my sins. Not that he did them, but that he has so thoroughly taken the sentence that they can be rightly considered his. And indeed, the New Testament goes even further than this. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, He, God, made him, Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, to become sin for us. Here in that verse, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, it doesn't say that the sins were just Jesus, Jesus is, but that Jesus himself perfectly embodied the sin so thoroughly that he became sin. That there was, in God's view, some grand transformation taking place on the cross. That Christ fell under the full weight of the sentence of death that is upon every sinner, but was placed there upon him. That is how he's able to call them my sins. In Absalom's rebellion, the nation turned against all the, all the nation turned against David, except for that band that went with him. And indeed, at the end of the story, if you remember, Absalom is killed, and the nation repents, and they come to David and they ask for forgiveness. They, they receive him as their king. But Jesus Christ is far greater than that in his suffering and in his humiliation. The Lord Jesus Christ did not have the same favor that David had in his circumstance. Christ was rejected not only by the religious leaders, he was also rejected by the Roman system, Pontius Pilate dismissing this innocent man. He not only was rejected by the religious and political system, but also the crowds in Jerusalem, the mobs as they were shouting to crucify him. And not only that, Jesus Christ in the hours of his death was abandoned by his closest, most important friends. So often we use the word disciples and we think, oh, that's just the term. We've become so familiar. We hear the word disciple and identify, oh, right, the twelve. Okay, now the 11, and then, you know, some with them. They weren't just disciples. They weren't just people with whom Jesus had a teaching relationship. He lived with them for about four years. Can you imagine living with someone for four years, and you're arrested, and they run away because they don't want to be arrested as well? That is who our Lord Jesus Christ was, that in his humiliation and in his rejection, it was so thorough that not only the whole nation on a governmental and a religious level and a political and a societal level, his own friends abandoned him. He says, for I am lonely and afflicted. Are you lonely? Have you been lonely? Jesus Christ knows that sort of Loneliness, that's what he's saying through David. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. Though Christ was not delivered that day from the sentence of the cross, in that he was not delivered from death, experiencing and tasting of it fully, he was delivered from the shame of having put his trust in Yahweh and Yahweh not delivered him ultimately. That God in his infinite mercy and grace was doing something that we see at the end of the psalm, that by sentencing Jesus Christ, he was accomplishing a grand redemption 
for all of God's people. As Christ was clearly, faithfully trusting his father, God was redeeming Israel. I want to I look at this last verse. And to me, this again shows the beautiful poetry of the scriptures. Israel was the name of Jacob. Jacob wrestled with God and God changed his name to Israel. And those tribes, the sons of Jacob, became the tribes of Israel. And so throughout the scripture, the word Israel is used to describe the nation of Israel as a whole. For example, in our own country, we say things like, America the beautiful, God shed its grace on thee. That doesn't make sense unless you can see that a nation can be personified. That Israel was named after their patriarch, Jacob, also named Israel, such that the tribes are called the tribes of Israel. And so David here, in the midst of seeing the entire nation in uproar and rebellion against the Lord's anointed himself, is asking God to redeem him and to redeem the nation from their waywardness. And I have a, a, uh, another meaning by which I believe the author intended. That is, the Holy Spirit was saying that the Messiah, as he is going to the cross, is praying for God's people, Israel. And that by the rejection of the true Israelite, Jesus Christ, the one, the only one who completely perfected, perfectly fulfilled the law, that as he is rejecting Israel, Jesus, he's saving Israel, God's people. That that is the grand paradox of the fact that the one was sacrificed for the many. That the, the fact that Jesus Christ was rejected and because he was rejected, we can be accepted. How beautiful is our Lord Jesus Christ. In this psalm, we see that he is faithfully, perfectly trusting the Father even as he's going to his death. That he knows he will taste of death and therefore he says, oh guard my soul, for he knows that he will taste death bodily. And in the resurrection, we know that our Lord was not put to shame, but was delivered from his great trouble. Because, God, because Christ trusted God in the midst of violent opposition, we too may call upon him, no matter the circumstance. Do you, do you face a circumstance that's hard this week? You can trust the Lord Jesus Christ. God delivered Jesus Christ out of the dead. That's what our God does, isn't it? Isn't it? Remember Abraham who offered up his son, Hebrews later says that he received him back from the dead, as it were. Romans 4 says the same thing. This is who our God is. We can trust our God because our God is the God who raises the dead. He takes things that look like death and makes them into life. He did that with Jesus Christ, and he's one day going to do that for you if you trust in him. Not only do you have hope for little circumstances today, tomorrow, this week, you have ultimate hope because we know that the scriptures tell us that because Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, one day in a glorious company, you, I, every saint who ever lived will be raised bodily, will be given a new frame, and will live forever with God. What a great and glorious hope. And I believe that that's the point of Psalms like this, 
It's for us to see the faithfulness of Jesus Christ and in imitating his faithfulness, we join our trust with his by his Holy Spirit and God's promises. Let's pray. Father, you are fantastic. You're amazing. Your kindness to your people knows no limits. We are so amazed that you would give us not only the record of what has taken place with your people, that not only do we have the record, but that by your spirit, it comes alive to us so that we can take the promises that you gave to them and read them as they are for us. Father, we thank you for your son and his perfect death and resurrection, which was done for all those who trust in him. Lord, I pray that you would impress upon us this truth that you are good and you are upright. And it is because of that that you lead us in the way that we should go. Father, I pray for great grace upon us as a church as we are moving into a new season. Lord, I pray that you would help us to have wisdom to keep our eyes fixed upon you and to commend your powerful work to others, that we would be able to rightly worship and celebrate your death and resurrection. Father, we ask these things for Jesus Christ's name and honor. Amen.